If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations run by the Trainees and Members Committee at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. I'm Libby Sampi and today I'm delighted to speak with Ian Lee about impromptu clinical teaching. Ian is a lecturer in medical education and senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy, who works mainly in the University of Edinburgh's clinical educator program. This is a staff development CPD program that supports clinical educators in their development as a teacher. With a background in nursing, Ian's past clinical teaching includes teaching resuscitation and clinical skills, ALS instruction, roles in simulation-based education, and of course, supporting medical and nursing students on clinical placement in patient-facing clinical settings, which is what forms the basis of today's Today's clinical conversation. Now in full-time academia, Ian continues to share his experiences of working with learners in clinical settings and augments this with evidence from the literature as well as insights developed from hosting workshops on similar topics. Welcome, Ian. Thanks very much, Libby. Thanks for having me along. I'm an avid listener of clinical conversations, so an invite to speak to you is really welcome. Thank you. Well, we're very excited to chat with you. So, as I said, we're going to be chatting a bit about impromptu teaching on the wards clinically. This is obviously something I can imagine most healthcare professionals do, and lots of us will have experience in it either as a learner ourselves or as someone who is teaching. Can you tell us a bit about what sparked your interest in impromptu teaching in healthcare settings? Yeah, so it's something that I was always doing. So a little bit in the same way that all doctors are expected to teach, all nurses are expected to take on a degree of mentorship. So having undergraduate nurses students with me on a clinical workplace was the norm, I suppose. So it's something that I'd been accustomed to anyway before getting involved with medical students. And in actual fact, a lot of people that do know me might not know that before I was in nursing, I actually worked in the motor trade, where the apprenticeship model was pretty common to me. So again, always have a novice learner on hand and I haven't been a novice learner myself. So the apprenticeship model was kind of normal. The nurse mentoring model was normal to me. I suppose for a long time, I was involved in teaching and mentoring without really viewing it as teaching. And I think it's probably something that I ended up doing lots of because I seem to have a certain aptitude for it. And when I say aptitude, I think that was probably more to do with my attitude towards things than it was to do with any knowledge or skills I had around teaching and learning because it probably wasn't until I was involved in faculty development in simulation-based teaching and doing this sort of generic instructor's course to become an ALS instructor or involved with clinical educator program as a participant before I took on that as a full-time job that I really started to think about the science, the literature, the evidence, the educational theory that underpins clinical teaching, be it clinical teaching per se, or within clinical environments. So yeah, I think it's probably something that I fell into because I had a certain attitude and aptitude for it, but something that once I realised that this was an actual concept, I did a lot more reading around and became much more involved. Yeah, I suppose you sort of forget that this is a way of teaching in many different settings, not necessarily just healthcare. 
And the apprenticeship model is essentially used quite a lot in healthcare and in other settings. So that's really interesting. You kind of forget that it does happen in other places too. Yeah. I suppose one of the sort of questions I wanted to go through today, because often it can be quite busy at the moment on the wards and obviously we're taking care of lots of patients. One big question I had was, do you feel it's possible to facilitate high quality learning experiences for students when you're still ensuring good patient care? The short answer is yes, I think it's possible. Yeah. If it was easy, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> That's true. And in the same way that a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the Swiss cheese model mm-hmm. of having certain things in alignment that maybe help to diagnose the root cause of a significant event. And I suppose the same could almost be applied to providing good quality patient care and good quality teaching and learning at the same time. And what I mean by that is if we have got essentially all your ducks in a row, if we've got people in leadership and strategic roles in higher education institutions, so the universities, who really know and understand what good teaching and learning looks like, and that follows through with people in senior strategic roles in the local education providers, so the teaching hospitals, and if they are working collegiately and they have got good sets of educational policies, principles, the funding, the personnel, if everything's there, then it should work. But to quote a management consultant from the last century called Peter Drucker, Peter Drucker said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what he meant by that was regardless of the policies and principles and strategies that you've got in place, if the surrounding cultures don't support the policy and strategy, then the whole thing is going to fall down. So I suppose what I'm saying there is regardless of what the policies and strategies are, or teaching in clinical environments with either the universities or the teaching hospitals and the people in the senior significant roles, actually the buck sometimes stops with the people who are doing the sort of shop floor teaching in clinical spaces. So another way to think about that is this sort of bottom-up strategy. You know, I've been describing a sort of top-down strategy. So in his book, The Checklist Manifesto, Atul Gwandi talks about the relief effort after Hurricane Katrina where lots of local people, local businesses got together and they provided resources, shelter, food, all that sort of stuff. And then they went up the chain of command and got reimbursed. So I guess what I'm saying is we are, as jobbing clinicians, we're the people at the bottom of that food chain that can actually make these things happen for students. Whether we know what the policy is, whether we really understand the curriculum, doesn't really stop us from making good, wholesome environments for students to learn in. So yeah, the short answer is yes, it's possible to provide good care and good teaching at the same time. But as I say, if it was going to be that straightforward, it would have a name, somebody would have written it up and we would all be using it, I suppose. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And I suppose leading on from that, what would you say are the challenges to that level of teaching and the benefits as well, I guess? So I think there are different ways of looking at benefits and challenges. Yep. The overarching benefit, the message I would try and give out is, you know, if we decide that we are too busy to teach at any given moment or on any given day, then we're probably prioritising patient care in the here and now. But actually, if we are providing good quality teaching in the here and now, we are protecting and providing good quality care for the future. I kind of see that as an overarching benefit. The challenges are probably a little bit more sophisticated. We know that just about all clinical departments are under pressure. We know that there's a constant increase in demand for improved levels of healthcare 
and improved standards of teaching and learning. We know that student numbers are going up, clinical placements are more difficult to find. So I suppose if you add all those things together, you quite quickly establish that we are up against it and that we're going to have to be innovative and creative in thinking about how we provide good quality clinical attachments and good quality patient care experiences for students going forward. So I think that's the biggest challenge, I would say. The other overarching benefits and challenges, I think if I were to think more specifically about the people involved, the literature talks about a learning triad that, as no surprise, involves patient, the student or the learner, and it involves you as a clinician or teacher. And then there's also the service they include as well, which is, you know, not just the immediate environment, but everything else that surrounds the services or the auspices that we provide the healthcare and education under. So we could look at benefits and challenges from any one of those. My own impression is that your listeners to this particular broadcast might prefer to hear about benefits and challenges from their own perspective as a teacher and clinician and from the perspective of their students, learners or trainees. But I don't know if you have preferences or if you want to hear about challenges or benefits to any of these other areas. I think, yeah, to start off with those and then we can see if you want to elaborate more. I think from the student or the trainee's perspective, I think what they've got by being involved in real clinical encounters is some sort of context that that's the learning to. Mm-hmm. We've probably all been in situations, clinical situations, where a penny has dropped and thought, yes, this is the stuff I've been learning about. Even if it's not necessarily been a penny dropping moment, the clinical encounters give us some sort of narrative or emotional attachment Even the sights, the sounds, the smells, the stories that go along with the learning, I think, are really valuable. I think there are other educational theories that sort of support teaching in clinical environments or learning in clinical environments. So leaving Wagner's situated learning theory, you know, there's that principle that if we are expected to apply learning in a certain set of circumstances, then we're going to be better equipped to do that if we learn those knowledge, skills, and attitudes in a similar environment, which is where simulation ties in, where simulation is very good, probably just not quite as good as the real thing. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. Again, legitimate peripheral participation is another educational theory. Again, it's Levin Wagner that comes from their communities of practice theory, where students really gain a lot from taking part in actual tasks. They might be low-stake tasks, but they're tasks that actually need done, so they're legitimately practicing, doing jobs that really need done for clinicians, for patients, for the service that they can also learn from. And I think those students and trainees learn an awful lot from the role models that they encountered along the way. We probably all can identify role models from our own experiences, both positive and negative, for a number of different reasons. And I think role model is one of the ways that we can teach through the hidden curriculum with a hidden curriculum, if that's new to anybody. In its most basic sense, to me, would be the lessons that are learned without necessarily or explicitly being taught by people. Small, subtle things like attitudes towards certain patient groups, attitudes towards colleagues or other specialties, these are some of the negative things that are pretty quickly communicated. In terms of positive role modeling things, the things, there's a, a list longer from the literature around what students and trainees gain from their clinical colleagues in terms of positive role models. But the ones that really catch my attention are things like, so clinicians who are positive role models or who are identified as positive role models are the ones who encourage their students to really think about their patients. 
They're the ones who promote reflection. They're the ones who provide good balanced feedback. They're the ones that provide good quality bedside teaching and probably most importantly, access to patients. So these are the things that I think trainees or students are really getting out of being involved in clinic placements. I can't quite think where we were up to. Did we discuss any of the challenges or were we still to do that? I think we're still to do a bit of that. We've probably all been in this situation of feeling a little bit awkward or feeling a little bit mm-hmm. in the way, not knowing who to report to, not knowing where to stand, not knowing if anybody's even acknowledged us. So I think they're probably the biggest challenges in clinical places. I think if that's how students are feeling, then they're unlikely to learn out. Yeah. So whilst it's a big challenge for students to overcome, I think it's actually a fairly easy one for educators to mitigate for. You know, I've got a colleague, but even as a consultant, if you mentioned bedside teaching to this chap, he would shudder because his experiences of being taught at patient's bedside were such that, you know, he felt intimidated, he felt put on the spot, under pressure, feeling that you were going to give the wrong answer, feel stupid. But again, I think there's a change in culture now. And I think that most teachers are beginning to realise that that's not useful, it's not helpful. So yeah, well, it's a big challenge for the students. I do think it's an easy one to mitigate. Absolutely. And the idea of bringing the learners and students into the community and making them feel part of the team so they gain as much from that experience as possible seems to be something that is very, very helpful. Everyone's learning, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are. There's a, a brilliant quote, actually, from one of your other podcasts from Professor Andrew Elder. I think when he's talking mm-hmm. about clinical skills and he says that best wardrobe is the one where the senior clinician says, I don't know. I think that's really important for students and learners to see that it's okay for the experts to not have all the answers all the time. You know, obviously we want our students and learners to develop in knowledge and skills and to become knowledgeable, but we're never going to have a full grasp of the discipline. And I think it's good for that to be role modeled from the seniors. Absolutely, because you can't know everything. And it's letting students know that it's okay not to know everything, but knowing when you don't know is just as important as knowing what you do know and looking it up when you need to is important. Absolutely. And then from the teacher's perspective and as a clinician teaching on the wards, what do you feel are, again, the benefits and challenges to that impromptu teaching environment? This is actually a discussion we have quite regularly when I got involved with Clinical Educator Programme. There's a brilliant colleague of mine, Dr. Janet Skinner, who's emergency medicine consultant and director for clinical skills at Edinburgh Medical School. And so this is a conversation that we strike up regularly with participants and there was workshops and courses. And I think some of the overarching things that come from clinical teachers when it comes to impromptu clinical teaching, the big benefit they see is that they don't need to plan. Now, I would argue that the best teaching is the teaching that's been thought out and planned with a good old traditional lesson plan. But actually, when it comes to impromptu clinical bedside teaching, you are essentially, pardon the old-fashioned expression, but killing two birds with one stone. You've been able to provide your service and do some teaching at the same time. So I think that's a big one for the clinical teachers. And you know, going back to that theory that I mentioned earlier, the legitimate peripheral practice. So as a teacher, actually, you're getting to teach and the job's getting done at the same time and you're getting the students or trainees to take on certain tasks and roles. I also think that one of the overarching themes that we hear in these discussions from clinical teachers is that it's a great way to keep up to date and to keep in touch, not just with your specialty, but in other aspects as well. You know, so take, for example, this is something that comes up quite quite regularly. Maybe somebody in a particular specialty doesn't really feel that they are best placed to teach a medical student. But I would argue that if you're a virologist and the medical student has a question about cardiology, 
I would expect that you probably still know enough cardiology to teach that student at that student's level of training. Maybe not in keeping with your peer as a senior trainee in cardiology, but enough for the student's level of knowledge that they need. So it's a good way to keep in touch with some of the other topics that you maybe don't teach about regularly or that's not necessarily your discipline. And another really great example I saw was from a specialty doctor in hematology who was describing a really complicated treatment regimen. And what she said was, the only reason I know this so well is because I've been having to teach it to the nurse practitioners. You know, that's a, a really good example of the old adage, the best way to learn is to teach it yourself. So I think these are some of the quick wins that clinical teachers get out of getting involved in teaching students on wards and in clinical spaces. It does, of course, come with challenges. There are difficulties. You know, it's not all plain sailing. And I think time is the biggie. And I think it doesn't matter what job you do, regardless of whether it's clinical or medical or not, we're probably all feeling pretty busy most of the time. And I'm aware that we're probably going to speak about how to make the best use of students' and doctors' time when we get busy. But it's worth acknowledging that, you know, I'm not saying that clinical teaching and impromptu teaching is always going to be easy. I think confidence is, is maybe a bit of a challenge too for clinical teachers a lot of the time. You know, again, there's a historical belief that if you're an expert in something, then you are credible to teach it. And that's not always the case. You know, there's a, a growing argument these days for people to become credible teachers and educators. You know, going back to that virology, cardiology analogy that I gave you earlier, there's sometimes people maybe don't just feel credible as a teacher, even if they feel credible in the subject. I know that there's an author called Kugel who writes about teacher identity. And so for developing educators or novice educators, it's quite often the case that you want to focus on ourselves. And that's a fairly common thing to do. And then we think more about the subject and it takes a long time to develop the sort of teacher identity to start considering how the student is or how the student is as a sort of autonomous learner as they are an adult learner. So I think, again, it's not easy to develop that sense of teacher identity. And I know that from my own personal background, I was in this job as a full-time lecturer and still really identified professionally as a nurse for a long time. So it takes a long time to build the credibility, the confidence, and without trying to promote my own programme too much or the programmes that my colleagues work on, I think getting some sort of qualification as a teacher or an educator was probably the game changer for me in terms of feeling like a more credible teacher, I suppose, and making me feel a bit more confident. And I think the last challenge I would, I mean, there are probably lots, I expect that your listeners have got lots of their own challenges they've come across themselves, but I think you know, the whole theme of this conversation is about balancing clinical work with teaching. And I think for most people, they would say that that's the biggie. How do I balance the workload and make sure I'm providing a good level of service while still teaching? And I think regardless of how expert you are, if you're trying to balance those things, it's going to stretch your cognitive load. It's going to make you feel like, you know, I went to visit my mum the other day. So this is very low stakes stuff. I went to visit my mum. And she wasn't responding when I came through the door like she usually does. I went and found her. She was knitting. She was counting on it. She was counting the rows. And it's a, a brilliant example, even in such a low-stake setting, that you can't think and do and speak all at the same time. So if you are a busy clinician and you are calculating drug doses and patient weights and thinking about stuff and thinking about your own job, trying to balance that with teaching is very difficult. But I am casting my mind back to a conversation that we had as part of the Masters in Clinical Education through University. And one of the discussions we had there 
He might have even been there, Libby, I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. present on that day was Associate Director for Medical Education at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Sarah Robinson. And she's also our past clinical lead in the emergency department. And she said a brilliant thing that I'm going to read here for you. So I think given her role and experience, she's a credible person whose opinion is valued. But she said, if you're doing good research and providing good teaching, you will by extension be delivering good care. So I think if that makes people feel any more confident in trying to find that balance, then maybe that's another way that people might want to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose just drawing on those challenges and benefits, are there any practical things you consider when teaching in clinical settings and how you sort of incorporate just basic things we do each day, things like patient consent, confidentiality into your teaching day to day? I think part of it maybe comes down to, again, role modelling. Mm-hmm. But it's, I guess if you're just role modelling, then it's difficult to signpost to the student that you are role modelling. If you're doing things like consent and if you're considering things like confidentiality, I think maybe making that explicitly clear and saying, you know, this is going to require informed consent. Why don't you pay attention to what we're asking or how we do this? Or asking the student questions about confidentiality and consent themselves. They can actually recognise that this is what's being role modelled. Does that make sense? Yeah. Also, I don't want to seem like I'm undervaluing confidentiality and consent, but these are things that the students are taught early on. And I think it can sometimes feel awkward getting students and patients involved with certain patient encounters, you know, if you think there's an embarrassing thing there or what have you. So the thing to keep in mind is, again, I don't profess to be an expert in medical ethics, but if our students are practicing within their scope of practice. So to me, that means if they've been taught the theory, if they've had a practice in clinical skills, that sort of stuff, then I would consider them to be working under the university or the NHS's vicarious liability policies. In the same way that as a staff nurse, if I had a student nurse working with me, as long as they were working under my supervision, then they were working under my accountability and my registration. And I think that all the students have got different degrees of capability and confidence and competence. So I think be mindful of just taking their word for stuff. You know, actually see what they're doing, judge how capable, competent and confident you think they are. And remember that confidence isn't a direct marker of competence or or capability. So I think it's worth keeping that in mind that if people are not unsure about students' level of skill or the things that they should or shouldn't be practicing in clinical spaces, then the Edinburgh Medical School a few years ago put together a really helpful matrix that has year four, year five, year six, and a list of things that they should or could be able to do either under supervision, direct supervision, or you know being asked to do something, or being asked to do something independently. But just because it's on a matrix doesn't always necessarily mean that that's going to be the case. But I don't know whether that answers your question about the practicalities and the confidentiality and the consent. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it was sort of drawing on sort of the practical aspects of impromptu teaching, but I think also we'll discuss it a little bit more in the next few topics we want to cover. And, you know, particularly going back to that busy clinical situation where you have suddenly found out you've got two students shadowing you and you're feeling overwhelmed with tasks and how to go about ensuring they're getting something from that experience. 
Have you got any tips or tricks? I know you've discussed a few already about sort of trying to point out what they should be paying attention to or, you know, debriefing a little bit afterwards and things. But any more tips or tricks on that busy clinical ward round, trying to get through loads of patients while keeping the learning experience up and running too? Well, I think the tempting thing and something that certainly happened to me as a nurse, mostly on foreign placement and elective, but I think it's probably something that we've all had happened to us and something that we've probably all done to other students as well. And so my plea to people is when you're busy and it feels like it's all too much, please don't just send them home. I think that's a really easy thing to do. And it feels like you're being nice. But we've already established that with shorter hospital stays, with higher acuity of patients, with higher volumes of student numbers, and it's more and more difficult to get students good quality access the patients. So I think we're actually doing them a disservice if we send them all. So that's my first don't do. I think in terms of do's, you mentioned the term shadowing. I think it's an interesting one. I think when it comes to shadowing, I think of shadowing as being a sort of passive exercise. And we know that our adult learners are going to develop better and more quickly when they're active learners. So it can be tricky to engage students when we are busy, when there's lots going on in the ward. So even if you're in that situation where you maybe can't engage with them, you can be role modeling other things. Things like dealing with clinical uncertainty, clinical decision making. These are the sorts of things which are becoming graduate outcomes, but they're rarely explicitly taught. So maybe can be quite well taught through the Edin curriculum. So actually just voicing out your own thought process is a nice way of role modeling your thought, how you are coming to the decisions that you're making. So yeah, I'm a man of sort of basic terminology, so I would just call it thinking aloud. Educationalists might call it reflection and action. Clinicians and people in certain roles might call it sharing mental models. And I think it works both ways, actually. If you're doing that thing where you're thinking aloud, not only are you cross-checking yourself as a sort of capable clinician, but you're also verbalizing to the students how it is that you are making the decisions that you're making. And then it's not just some sort of magical piece of knowledge that you've had embedded in your head since you left medical school. I think that's one thing that we can do. Sticking with the sort of shadowing thing, there will be times where we just have to say to students, I'm sorry, we're going to see the next three patients really quickly. I don't have anything that you can be doing, but just making them active observers. So that could involve just getting them to look out for things that they've been taught previously that they've seen happen in this clinical encounter or asking them to make a note of things that they've got questions about. You know, what are the things that you've spoken about with this patient that they need to either discuss with you if you've got time, and if you still don't have time, they may be identify it as self-directed learning. It might be that they could view the consultation through the lens of the patient, and you ask them, what do you think are the key things from that consultation? What would you take away from that? What questions might you have if you'd been in the, the patient's shoes? Other things you could do is if you were feeling really brave, we're constantly asked to give our students feedback. The program I work on has courses about how to give feedback. And I think a lot of the time we maybe should be focusing on teaching people how to receive feedback as well. So maybe encouraging students' feedback literacy and creating a culture of giving and receiving feedback. This could feel really anxiety-provoking. But asking a student to identify points of feedback for you could be an active observational role. And I think they would find that a struggle too. So maybe giving them a really basic model, you know, a salmon model or a two stars in a wish or something to work with. But that's maybe the high risk end of the spectrum in terms of active observation. 
Yeah, I'm just smiling there because I have done that in the past and asked a medical student who was working with me for any feedback on how my consultation with the patient went and they just looked so petrified <laughs> to give me feedback. I think they'd just never been asked that question before and I'd like to think I'm relatively approachable and that they would be quite happy to tell me their honest opinion. Obviously, a lot of difficulties with that and that was a big topic we maybe won't go into but I just remember thinking oh, I feel like they've never been asked that before quite an interesting um discussion we had afterwards so you are a trailblazer and that you gave it a go well done so yeah is it that we just need to do more of that and make that part of the sort of feedback culture and literacy I don't know would it be easier if they had some sort of rubric or checklist or something you know when students are doing ear feedback you know if they're doing cannulation and they've got that rubric of things that they need to check off I don't know whether things like that make it easier for students to give feedback but I guess if we go from being a student one day and receiving feedback to then becoming a junior doctor the next day and having to give students feedback and they've not practiced giving feedback then I think it's an admirable thing you did and I'm really interested to hear that you tried it. So would you agree that it's a sort of a, a slightly higher risk strategy? I would say so. Well, I mean, I'm always happy to receive feedback, good or bad. It's always good to know what someone's thinking and you get a lot of information from that and can learn yourself from that experience. I think in this situation, I was working with a postgraduate medical student who was a clinical nurse as well. So it was doing a conversion course into medicine and I was just genuinely wanting to understand their honest opinion of how they felt it went. So it was quite a natural question to ask them, but they still looked a little bit, oh, Oh, I'm surprised you asked me that. And I don't know, in some places, there's also the difficulty with a bit of hierarchy situation still going on yeah. and contributes. You know, if some of my consultants turned around and asked me, oh, do you have any feedback for me? I would probably feel a bit like that too and think, oh, yeah. I'm not sure what to say in this situation. I suppose from that, we could maybe surmise that if it's tricky for people who are postgraduates, you know, whether that's a nurse practitioner or whether it's yourself, will be giving feedback to somebody who's a clinical senior, that it's probably going to feel even more anxiety provoking for an undergraduate student to do that. But again, if it's something that's tricky, it's something that we may need to practice more. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean we should avoid it. Absolutely. I agree. So yeah, you asked about when things are busy and what we can do to help create learning opportunities. I think one of the other things is to get students to take part in those tasks. You know, I mentioned earlier about the legitimate peripheral participation. So that involves getting students to actually take on tasks, real clinical tasks. Sometimes students, and we know this from some of the, the student feedback that we collected a long time ago, that for some students, that's the point at which they feel like they're part of the team. Even if it's a simple task and you're going step to step down here and they go, oh, wow, all of a sudden I've been given a task that makes them feel like some sort of sense of belonging. There has been feedback from other students who say that they feel like they're just doing tasks. So there's a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Callum Cruikshank, who is a trainee in medicine in the elderly. And he noticed that when he was asking students, so he thought he was going to ask students to get involved in some of the daily clinical tasks, the sort of normal tasks for a, a junior doctor. And the students felt that they were just doing jobs and that they weren't being taught. So Callum tried to reframe these tasks and reframe them as learning opportunities. So rather than just rewrite this card X, it was a case of you're going to have to rewrite card X as a junior doctor, you know, so giving it some sort of sense of utility and say, while you do it, why don't you make a list of, do you think there's any sort of polypharmacy in this card X? Are the medicines on here that you're unfamiliar with? You know, what confuses you about this card X? So getting students not just to do the task, but actually to apply a little bit of reasoning and cognition to it. Same can be said, you know, when I, my background, as I said, was emergency department nursing. So a lot of the time, medical students were used for doing bloods and ECGs. 
good ECG that patient, go and take blood from that patient. So rather than just getting them to do the task, a nice way of reframing that as a learning opportunity is have a brief read of the notes, have a think about what are the reasons you think that we've requested an ECG or a chest X-ray or a set of bloods on that patient. What are we trying to rule in or out? Get them to follow up on the task, get them to have a go at interpreting the, the ECG or looking at the blood examples and putting them to context and seeing if they can make sense of them rather than just doing the task on its own. And again, these things might take a little bit of time, but it's all about charging the saw before you chop down the tree, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good way of thinking it through because I'm sure a lot of students probably also feel, oh, I'm just being sent off to do this mocha or these bloods and not really know the context behind it or why we're doing it. And actually, that's a really useful way of incorporating learning into that experience whilst learning how to do the task itself. So I think that's really useful. I think I'll try and use that a bit more in my teaching. That's good. I mean, I think it probably creates a bit of autonomous thinking as well. Do you know if they're looking at the patient notes and they're getting a background and a feel for why you're doing what you're doing, then I think it's useful. I think in summary, in terms of what we can do when we really are busy and we feel like we can't teach and provide care at the same time, I think that thinking aloud thing can be quite useful. And again, it's worth maybe just taking that one or two sentences to explain that that's what you're doing so that they see that as an active observation role rather than just passively shadowing you and not making sense of the things that you're saying. So yeah, the active observation thing, I think is a nice thing. And I think just doing anything that gives students access to patients when you're otherwise busy, I think makes for a, a meaningful student experience rather than just having them sitting on the sidelines somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And just sort of coming off that, I have heard of a few different tools that can be used to help teach when you are working on the wards. I was wondering if you could run through a few of those or one that you particularly think is helpful that we could perhaps use as clinicians teaching on the wards. Of course. So yeah, there are different tools or strategies or probably are other ones that I'm unfamiliar with, but it might be a nice place to start might be to consider a quote by educationalist and writer Parker Palmer. He writes, can teaching be reduced to technique or is it relying on teacher integrity? And I think clearly the answer he's looking for is the latter. But we already mentioned earlier that, you know, not everybody has that teacher credibility or that confidence. So I think I would reply to Parker Palmer by saying, yeah, it's going to be the latter. But in going from novice to expert teacher, there are some tools and techniques and strategies that we can apply and there's absolutely no shame in applying them and they, they can make for meaningful learning experiences and helping us as teachers and educators to sort of structure or, or package a learning experience gives us a bit of sense of satisfaction as well. So I think the two that I'm aware of and the other ones might exist were both designed around sort of primary care, GP setups and outpatient type setups. But I can't see any reason why these wouldn't be applicable anywhere else. I don't know. So you might be more critical, or rather your listeners might be able to cast a more critical eye. So yeah, I think the ones that I would discuss with you here now are the One Minute Preceptor, which was designed by Neha et al. in 1993. And the other one that I'll discuss is the Snaps model by Walpaw et al. from 2003. And I do have a favourite, and I don't mind telling you which one that is, but I'll maybe go, you know, you did, you did say if there's one that you favour, and I'll, I'll tell you why that is. Do you want me to go through what these models involve? Yeah, that would be good. So the one minute preceptor, the one that was designed for GP settings, and it has sort of five stages to it. The first stage is to be get a commitment. The second stage is to probe for evidence. Third stage, teach general rules. Stage four, 
is go over what the student or the learner got right or wrong in the last stage is correct mistakes. So I think the first one, getting a commitment, personally, I think is a wee bit problematic as a statement on its own. There's a big difference between a novice learner and a more expert or more learned postgraduate trainee. So yeah, we want our students and our trainees at some stage in their career to be able to make a commitment. But asking a student what a diagnosis is, is pretty high stakes. That's pretty high risk. There's a good chance they're going to get that wrong. And even if they get it right, it's going to put them under pressure. I think a nice way to frame that for a more novice learner is what do you think might be going on? Mm -hmm. There's no real wrong answer to that. And then when that leads you on to the second phase is probing for support and evidence. Okay, so you think it might be an MI. Why do you think it's an MI? What makes you think it's an MI and not a collapse or not a seizure? So probing for evidence so that we know that it's not just a good guess on the student's behalf. The third stage is around teaching general rules. We've already established that we're busy, there's lots going on, there's probably a limit to how much detail you can go into with any given topic. So I think with this model, these models are designed to not take up any more time than is absolutely necessary. So I think teaching general rules is a nice way to not have to go into too much depth. So things like treat a broad complex tacky as VT until proven otherwise, or the most common sites for metastases are A, B, C, and D, you know, rather than going into minute detail. The fourth and fifth stages, which are what did the student get right or wrong, and to correct mistakes, I think is get back onto the feedback theme. Yeah. I could probably do another one hour podcast on feedback alone, so I'm going to try not to go into that too much. All I would say is when it comes to giving our students feedback, maybe just focus in on the sort of key things that need to be addressed and maybe try to leave them with a sense of achievement and feeling upbeat and positive about their own performance. I don't know, is that one that you've come across? Have you seen that or used that, Libby? I've heard about it. I haven't so much used this in practice, but it's certainly one that I'd like to try using a bit more. There are videos available on the internet and I'm not going to directly signpost to them because some are more useful than others. Some have got a tendency to propagate some stereotypes around who the teacher is and who the learner is and that sort of stuff. But it lets you see what it might look like. The other one that I was going to discuss was the SNAPS model. And I don't mind telling you that this is my favourite. <laughs> and I think it's my favourite because even without people knowing that this is a model or it's a thing, I see people implement, if not the whole thing, then certain elements of it when they're teaching with students and patients. So I think it's a useful thing to go through and people might see elements of this in their own practice, but they might also find there are little bits that they're maybe not doing that could make for a more meaningful experience. That said, when I'm speaking about these models, I think we need to be careful not to have an over-reliance on them and to be too formulaic with them. Because I think authentic teaching trumps polished teaching every day of the week. So I think if we look like we're using a strategy or a particular model all the time, then it might almost make the teaching look a little bit prescriptive. Alternatively, I think one of these models, it might be the SNAPS model, when the paper was written up, they actually encouraged the students and trainees to use that model when they were reporting their findings. So both these models are designed around a student going off, speaking to a patient, taking a history, doing a bit of an examination, coming up with some thoughts and ideas. Sometimes we can use strategies a little bit cloak and dagger. I think I see people using Pendleton's rules for feedback without actually explicitly saying what they're doing. But actually, with some of these models, you can say, why don't we get you to review the patient and come and feedback to me using this structure? So the SNAP model has six elements to it. So the X is for summarize. The N is for narrow. So that's narrowing differentials. 
A is for analyze. There are two P's. The first one is for proving, which I'll come on to in a minute. And the second one is for planning. And the last one being to identify self-directed learning. So this model was designed primarily for outpatient settings. And the first part is probably a little bit like, but it's probably not like getting a commitment. I think the analyze is probably like getting a commitment. The summarize is useful because I think we're quite used to giving students sort of structured approaches to getting a history and to doing an examination. And then what they, they come back and they, they kind of feedback in the same sort of structured format. And I think that is useful. It's a good thing for them to do. I'm not disputing that at all. But I also think that we need our students to learn how to differentiate between the wheat and the shaft. What are the real salient points from this patient's history and examination that I, the clinician, need to know about? And so getting them to summarize that is a, a good thing for them to be able to do. And then narrowing to some differentials is a little bit like getting a commitment from the one-minute perceptive model, where we're asking them, what do you think might be going on? What are the sort of top two or three differentials that are on your list? And then the analysis part is a little bit like probing from the other model, where we're trying to make sure that it's not just a good get. What makes you think that this was a seizure over a vasovagal and getting them to, to think a little bit more deeply? The first P is probe. And in the last model, that probe was the expert teacher probing the learner about why they had the thoughts and opinions that they did. In the SNAPS model, that's very different. In the SNAPS model, we are encouraging the students and learners to probe us, the expert, the clinician. And that can be a little bit anxiety-provoking. <laughs> when I said that there are bits that maybe people don't do I think this is one of the elements that I see people not doing. There is it because they don't know about the STAPS model, but they've maybe seen other elements of it elsewhere used on then, so they replicate it. Or do they know about the STAPS model and they find giving students the opportunity to probe them a little bit anxiety-provoking? So yeah, it might be that the student says, well, how long after a long-haul flight is PE still a risk factor? So these are some of the questions that they might have for you, and you go, oh, absolutely. Again, going back to that comment that we made earlier, if you don't know, then that's okay. Say we don't know. It can be something to do as the self-directed learning part of this process. And again, I think I said earlier, there's absolutely none of us are going to be so well-versed in our disciplines. You know, I think the things that we teach are so big and so dynamic and changing all the time, that no matter how much you engage with the research and the reading, you're never going to keep on top of everything. So I, I think it's okay not to know stuff. But I also think it's good that we give our students a chance to prove the expert for them. And then that second P is the plan. So come up with a little bit of a plan. What do we want to do next with this patient or this situation? That doesn't need to be treatments. I think for a long time when I first learned about this model, I thought it was about developing sort of treatment and action plan, but it can also be about identifying other diagnostics that maybe need to take place. And then that S, the self-directed learning bit. That's another thing that when I see people letting students go off and take a history and examine a patient, get them to feedback, the self-directed learning thing is another thing that I see people miss out quite regularly. And that's quite a nice thing to do. And again, they don't need to go and learn the minutiae of a certain system or an ailment or a treatment therapy. Self-directed learning, it can be something quick and easy. And the nice thing about this is, assuming that you've got the time, if there was something that you didn't know, Quite nice if you can kind of come back and I guess that would be the nice thing I think for a student to come back and sort of almost share the responses that you both came up with from your sort of Google searches over lunch or whatever, whatever you came about your findings. So yeah, yeah. that sums up that stats model. 
So again, I expect you've probably heard of that one yeah. as well, whether it's seen in practice or not, I don't know. I think some people probably do aspects of it even without realizing it is part of a model. I suppose then you have the option to build up the other areas. Now we're aware of the model itself. And as I say, even if you're not using it formally, even if you don't go into all of these aspects, if you've got just something in the back of your mind so that when a student is presenting a patient to you, you're able to engage with them a little bit and maybe give them just something else that will maybe help make it a more memorable experience that helps them to recall that in the future. Absolutely. So that's really helpful. Thank you so much for going through those two tools that can be used to different levels if needed and just to guide people with their teaching on the ward. Yeah, I think they can be differentiated depending on the level of the learner or manipulated to suit your own needs, your learner's needs. Yeah, they're, they're just nice things to have in the back of your mind, even if you're not going to use them in the way they were written up. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. I've definitely learned a lot myself, and I think people listening to the podcast will also have picked up a lot of very useful tips from that discussion. So thank you so much, Ian. Thanks, Hobby. Thanks for having me today. It's been a, a real pleasure getting to take part in the clinical conversations. Do you again soon.